This is George Foyt, and you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Welcome back, Ben Rock. Tell some people here who you are and what do you do? Hey, I'm Ben Rock. I'm a director, sometimes co-writer with Bob DeRosa. I make films, I make podcasts, I make theater, I make audio, drama, all kinds of stuff, mostly in the horror thriller genre. How about yourself, Ilya? Let's introduce you. I'm an inventor, an entrepreneur. I have a company called Hot Rod Cameras. We sell camera equipment to the motion picture and television industry, amongst other folks out there, including the government and production companies and studios and all that fun stuff. Schools? Schools, yeah, lots of schools. LAUSD is a big client of ours, which is nice. That's that's good to know. Yeah. Uh, All right. So, Ben, who is on our show today? One of our good friends, one of our closest friends, both you and I. George Foyt. Uh, George, I believe, has DP'd more things that I have directed than any other single DP. I think I've worked with him on set more days than anyone else ever. George is really talented, and he's got a really good, consistent day gig. He uh, shoots for Jimmy Kimmel Live. He's probably shot more stuff that is on YouTube right now with like hundreds yeah. of thousands or millions of views, like broadcast show type stuff. And man, he's just a heck of a nice, humble guy. And we get into all that stuff in the interview in just a few minutes, which is yeah, cool. George, George is just an incredible DP. He uh, won an Emerging Cinematographers Award from, I believe, the... Cinematographers Guild, yeah, a local six hundred, yeah, the, uh, the yeah. International Cinematographers Guild, yeah, they, they, yeah, they're the ones. Uh, who he do that. won that. I think he won it twice, if I'm not mistaken. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, and, it, uh, and deservedly, his, yeah. And his work, great. his work is really stand out. And the thing about George is, like, we've been trying to get him on the show for a long time because he is a good friend. In fact, he named our next segment "Close Focus." That was his suggestion that we took. Yeah, I was going to say we're bearing the lead here. He actually contributed to our show. We were like, "What are we going to call this segment?" And he came up with it immediately. Like, yeah. you know, yeah, first suggestion, and boom, that was it. And now, close, close focus. focus. But like, you know, George, sometimes when I would talk to him about doing this, he's like, well, I want to have a big feature or something coming out that I want to talk about. And I actually feel like one of the things that we want to talk about on the show are kind of the very diverse kinds of careers you can have as a cinematographer. And the thing is, George goes to work every day, shoots stuff. I know he uses his amazing cinematic eye to do so for Jimmy Kimmel. And then also he'll go off and make features or he'll do goofy shit like the stuff he did with me. He shot uh, all but one episode of 20 Seconds to Live and he shot the short film that I did, Future Boyfriend. Also a bunch of corporate stuff that I've done. He's an awesome guy and I think that his story will be of interest to people who are looking to get into the business but are maybe like, but how could I also have a life while I do this? I actually think it'll be broader than just uh, people looking to get in the industry. I think that there's For a sure. lot of people who uh, do work in the industry and have often thought like, man, I mean, how would I get on a show like Jimmy Kimmel or how would I uh, yeah. go do something like that? And, and what's it what, like? I mean, just yeah. what if you watch some of those Jimmy Kimmel segments, I mean, they have to turn those things around insanely fast. And he talks a little bit about that. But that is not at the expense of making it look good. If you get Matt Damon or somebody like that, you got to light them. You got to take proper care of, of your stars. Anyway, I'll let George talk for himself. I couldn't be happier to have him on the show. 
Yeah. All right. So that's coming up in just a few minutes. Ben, now's the <laughs> the George Foyt named uh, close focus <laughs> segment of the show where we talk about something topical. We talk about something that's going on, current events, yeah. uh, something about the business of the industry. What is uh, what's our close focus today? What are we talking well, about? It wasn't even a contest this week as to what we needed to talk about because, you know, we've been dealing with the Writers Guild strike, which has been going on for a month. I'm in the Directors Guild. And on Sunday morning, I got an email that the Directors Guild had reached a tentative agreement with the AMPTP companies. And yeah. I was kind of like, oh, because uh, I feel like the temperature within the DGA membership as I talk to them are like, we need to go on strike and show solidarity with the writers because all of the things the writers are striking about affect the directors. And I looked through uh, the list, which anyone can find online, of the agreement that the DGA got with the AMPTP companies. And uh, it, it doesn't seem terrible to me. There's there's some things that I, I actually, I was like, oh, I'm so glad. Like one of them is you're not allowed to have live firearms on set anymore. Mm, that's How big. freaking Yeah, exactly. That's huge. Yeah. There, there are a bunch of things like that where I'm like, okay, good, 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 good. I mean, I'm sure that lots of people are still going to have live firearms on set because I'm sure that there will be waivers or whatever that you'll have to sign, but then there's going to be all kinds of safety hoops one will have to jump through to do this thing that, in my opinion, almost no one ever needs to do. However, I mean, I was kind of shocked. I've been out with my friend Bob DeRosa marching on the picket lines a couple of times now. Not not as many as I would like, but as much as my schedule will allow, I've been out there doing that. And I just honestly didn't, didn't expect the DGA to come to the agreement. Hot on that news, hot on the tails of that news, SAG-AFTRA came out and 97% uh, of their membership authorized a strike vote, which... Mm. Is doesn't mean that they're going to go on strike, but it means that they are willing to go on strike. Like if they go on strike, 97% of their membership is in support of that. So that is a story that is unfolding a little bit in my talks with other people in the industry. A lot of things I never even thought about. But if the DGA went on strike, first of all, uh, if you think the DG, if, if you're listening to this and you're not like deep in this stuff like we are, if you think the DGA is mostly directors, you're wrong. The DGA is assistant directors, it's line producers, it's first and second and second, second ADs. I, I don't which, know what the... Which, yeah, really, the, the path to second, second AD is PA. So, you know, it really, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty interesting. Like, you can go into the industry as a PA... And your next step up is second, second AD. And it's I being say, in the director's guild. It's being in the director's yeah. guild. It's, it's really, it's a, it's a pretty remarkable path that, you know, if people really want to get into it. They even have a, a DGA training program, which usually people get into that from their experience of being a PA. DGA is arguably the most, you know, inclusive uh, guild that way, which is kind of amazing. Well, on a DGA project, there's going to be five or six generally positions that are DGA positions, only one of which is director. So math would dictate that there are a lot more people who aren't directors in the DGA. And an AD friend of mine actually reached out to me, very happy that the agreement was arrived at. And I was a little bit less excited, but this person's a first AD, so she wants to work. If DGA goes on strike, for instance, stuff I hadn't thought about, there will be no televised sports, like overnight. Televised sports is yeah. over. Perhaps for that very reason, the AMPTP, knowing stuff like that, they came to an agreement quickly with the DGA, but also, lest we forget, in 2008, the Writers Guild were on strike, and the DGA came to an agreement, and the AMPTP basically then goes to the WGA and says, well, the Directors Guild took this, so you should do that too. Yeah, I have a feeling we're about to see a rerun of that. 
I, I agree, except if SAG goes on strike, then it's really hard to beat because there's only three guilds in the motion picture industry. There's five unions, but three guilds. If two of the three guilds go on strike, if they don't have SAG actors, then televised sports gets to keep on going. But that reality television, a few other things get to go. Yeah. It just means that all the content that they're going to want, it, it, you know, basically six months a year from now, which is what that stuff would be, is all basically on hold. So. Yeah, it's interesting to see how it's shaking out. Was um, I saw that foreign residuals was part of the DJ deal. I know that residuals is a real sticking point for the WGA. I do see here that Variety actually has an article from day before yesterday saying that the DGA deal does approve pay hikes, but streaming residuals are not tied to the show's success. So I don't know if that's going to be a flat fee or how that's going to work. But yeah, it sounds to me like if you have a really, really super hit show, your residuals uh, from streaming may not reflect that. Well, and it kind of goes without saying that this is not final. This then goes to a vote from the membership of the Directors Guild. I don't speak for all the DGA, but I can tell you that I've been sort of commiserating with other DGA people, including directors. And a lot of us are, shall we say, skeptical about whether we will vote to accept this. Hmm. Will a majority of the DGA feel that way? I, I don't know, because again, I, I think the majority of the DGA are not directors and probably uh, they just want to go work. So and, and, you know, also keep in mind, those are people who don't get residuals. So yeah. I don't want to break anyone else's rice bowl. And I honestly don't want the entire industry to shut down. I myself am as close to getting a feature made as I have been in a while. And it could start gearing up pretty soon, but not if there's a strike and no bonding company will bond movie if there's an impending strike. So I selfishly would like the strike to be over quickly. But in terms of the broad sweep of the industry, I think we need to have a reckoning about a lot of what's going on. I think the residuals issue is probably more important than uh, AI, but I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like the AI argument is ongoing. I, I kind of feel like it's uh, the cryptocurrency, the, the Y2K virus. It's the, the techno boogeyman of the moment. And does it end up affecting us the way that people are afraid it will? Uh, I'm not, it has yet to be seen, but, you know, probably getting guardrails around AI isn't the worst thing that, that could happen. And it looks like they're willing to do that. The AMPTP is willing to do that. So uh, we will probably talk as little as possible, yet more about this story as it develops. I think that sounds like a good plan. Hey, let's get to our interview with our dear friend, George Foyt. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Hey, uh, we are joined now by the legendary George Foyt, who we've been talking about since the beginning. Uh, ben and I are sharing a microphone here. We're all together in person. It's like there was no pandemic or something. This is great. And uh, George, I have to give you props here. I think you completely outdid Shane Hurlbut for bringing us wine and cheese and snacks, including like this 15 year aged stuff. This is incredible. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. And boy, hey, you've set the, the bar very high for any other DPs or directors who want to come on the show and bring us something because this is this is quite a spread. Well, I think the, the general rule of the job of cinematographer is steal from the best. So, <laughs> um, you know, put your own little spin on it. And In that's, your uh, face, Shane Hurlbut. <laughs> Ben the said the, that I did not. The gauntlet is thrown, and I want anyone to figure out how they can uh, bring us wine and cheese over Zoom. Now, I, I will say that these are from Widmer's Cheese Cellars in Wisconsin, about three miles from where I grew up. So it's uh, it's it's a thing. It's uh... <laughs> 
so George, I've known you forever. You and I have worked together. I think I may have worked with you more than any other singular DP. You know, everyone has a unique story, how they got into it. Let's kind of get into it and talk about your origins as a cinematographer. And the question I always like to ask is, when did it first occur to you that this was like a job you could pursue and started you down the path of becoming uh, the cinematographer you are today? Give us a, your life story. Go. <laughs> uh, it's a great question because I grew up in a tiny town in Wisconsin of like 4,300 people mm. when I was there. Didn't have a movie theater. We, you know, you didn't we, have a movie theater. We did not. We, we had to drive like 20 miles to a crappy little chain thing somewhere. And what's a movie you can remember driving 20 miles to go see? I remember uh, in high school, like a, a friend of mine, like, it's like, hey, let's go see the new Terminator movie, which mm. is Terminator 2. And yeah, that yeah. did kind of blow my mind. There are movies you, you got to see on the big screen. Mm -hmm. But um, if movies weren't a thing in your hometown, what was it? Cow tipping? What was the big thing there? Oh, it, it's Wisconsin. So it's it's sports. It's, uh, you know, our, our football team did well and, and everybody was excited about that. And, you know, I, I was amongst the, the theater crowd and, and the arts people. Um, and that's that's kind oh, of that's right. You studied theater, right? Very shortly. But back in high school, like I kind of found my way into doing the uh, lighting design for all the plays and musicals that we did. And I, I loved it. It was so much fun just to basically you're, you're kind of painting the player of the musical that's going on with, with light and figuring out all the, all the cues and stuff like that. And I, I had so much fun. And at the same time, I remember I, I did this uh, independent study class of photography because I've, I've always loved, you know, still cameras and stuff. And actually, one of my first jobs ever was I got tapped to shoot uh, photography for our little local newspaper. So I shot like the basketball games, the football games, stuff like that, mm. and, and just stuff at our school. But uh, I, I was just so happy to go out and be a junior photojournalist, essentially. So I love running around with cameras. I love lighting things. And it took me, you know, a few steps forward when I actually ended up in film school. I'm like, oh, this cinematography thing. Oh, right. Yes. Yes. That. Like all this comes together into that job. So anyway, yeah coming into there at least for me it was great because i had no fucking idea mm -hmm. of how film sets work how a screenplay is put together how to wrap up bnc cable well, they didn't really teach us that but um do you over under it how do you do it uh bnc yeah you have to okay good. Um, uh, but stinger is just over over although i'm left-handed and you do it clockwise and it, it can sometimes screw things up because it's a different it, that, oh man that, that's a whole other hour discussion well, um, we have to do a, a, a special on cable etiquette. Yes. <laughs> Let's spend the next 30 minutes talking about wrapping cables. Oh, man. George, you, you start us off. <laughs> uh, the big thing was how to tell a story. That is what you learn and, and a lot of the basics of how a set runs. But also, um, I'm going to go back to Woody Omens. We had this, this one assignment where he wanted, we had to light someone to look like an angel. And I'm like, well, I kind of want to overexpose them a little bit and get a little bit of glow. And we're shooting this on film. I go, well, how how many stops can I overexpose before it gets blown out? And Woody goes, oh, well, okay, well, let me tell you. No, I'm not going to tell you. I dare you to blow it out on film. He goes, see if you can do it. Nice. Show me that. And that that's what it was. So that kind of uh, just atmosphere was, was fantastic for learning. Mm -hmm. So, well, okay, so you've done film, you've done digital, extensively both. Do you miss shooting on film? If you get an opportunity to shoot film, do you jump at it? Or are you happy with the instant feedback and the versatility of digital? I mean, I would, I'd love to shoot uh, a project on film. I think, um, yeah, one of the reasons Succession looks just 
subtly different, unique, mm-hmm. and great is it's shot on film. I and actually didn't know that, and I should know that. Yeah, they, they shoot on 35. And if you look at uh, especially the Manhattan office shots just looking out the windows, the way that film rolls off highlights into clipping, if it even clips, like you see just the sunlit backgrounds out those windows, and it's just there, there's something about it. Mm-hmm. There's just something about it. Like I've, you know, I brought my still camera here. I still shoot a lot of film on, you know, in my still camera because it's especially like Tri-X black and white film. Yeah, there, there's so many film simulations out there for it, but it, it just, especially in the highlights, it, it doesn't match it. But that being said, on an indie film, it's a race. It's a struggle. It's a battle to get, to tell the story and get it into the can. So for that little subtle difference of shooting film, if you can get more setups done, if you can get more rehearsals in, if you can get more just coverage that that tells the story by shooting digital you know it it, you can't sabotage the process of of getting a a film done by you know chasing a nuance like that Mm -hmm. because it's all about the story and and again you grab an alexa from 15 years ago and and you're gonna have a beautiful image yeah it's it's you gotta pick your battles yeah yeah but especially on the indie projects that i do Here's a good example. Oh, you can shoot on film, sure, but you're gonna lose four days of your production schedule, of, of your shoot schedule, and um, also I have to cut down your grip and electric crew by 30%. No, like that, it, as a DP, you gotta figure out where where the important things are to, to spend money on. Yeah. So I'd love to shoot on film, but not if it sacrifices the, the movie in any way. So you go to USC and did you do grad or were you just undergrad there? Just undergrad. But you met like, you met Greg Bishop there, right? Yes, I met uh, Greg Bishop there. You met a bunch of people. Yeah. Who, like, who are some of the people who you went to school with? Because, you know, for, I, I feel like somebody listening to this might be like, oh, uh, USC sounds interesting, but like some of the people you went to school with are fairly storied even quite recently. Yeah, Greg Bishop, uh, I've been his DP for years now, ever since we did Dance of the Dead, which mm-hmm. was the first feature that I did. Ki Kwan was in my writing class and I shot a short film for him after that and and pff, he has an Oscar now. I know. That was <laughs> so crazy. crazy. So, um, such a I mean I remember you told me that years ago when it was sort of like, "Oh, you were, you know, you you went to school with the guy who played Short Round, but now it's like it Academy is, Award winner. <laughs> Academy Award winning Short Round. It is so well deserved. He, he yeah. is such a, a like I cannot overstate how incredible of a person he is, how how gracious, how nice, how generous like it's He's one of the good guys that won. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm so happy about that. Sad that it took so long for him to get what you know he truly deserved because he's such an incredible actor. And it's bullshit that it took so long, but thank God it finally happened. It definitely sounds like a huge benefit of going to film school is your class, is the people who you end up going there with. And in addition to you know the, the expense and the experience and everything else that kind of is wrapped up in the film school experience, how much value would you say, uh, would you put on your network of people that you either directly or indirectly connected with through, through USC? God, almost all of it. So my roommate, Brian Crew, brought me in to a job right out of film school. I was, I was producing entertainment news. Like it's, it's again, remember Mountain of Debt, USC. I'm like, oh, this pays money? Like, and I was day playing as an electrician at the time, like a full-time job, oh. And through him, met another camera guy that uh, also worked at a company called Pie Town Productions. Ben, both Ben and myself, uh, our spouses have uh, long histories of, of working for Pie Town. 
And yeah, and because you worked at Pie Town, that's how I know you, because you shot for years for my wife. And one of the other DPs at Pie Town, his name is Baron Reinhardt. We hit it off as friends right away. And while I was shooting, I was shooting actually the first season of the reality show Girls Next Door, the, mm. the Hugh Hefner thing. While I was on the shoot, Baron kept calling me saying, hey, I'm on this show. It's a... Uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live, uh, Jimmy Kimmel's new uh, late night show. You should come out and shoot some of these bits. Are you available tomorrow? Are you available? Then? I'm like, no, 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 Baron. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm, I'm DPing my own reality show at the Playboy Mansion. I'm like, this, this is amazing. And it's like, oh, okay. W- when's that over? You should come out and do. <laughs> so literally, my roommate at USC through the, I call it the Plinko of life. Remember Plinko on uh, um, Price, Price is, is right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Y- you drop that little disc up there. You don't know what slot it's going to end up, but it, it's through all the just randomness of, you know, you're like, oh, yeah, because I put it there and I hit this one and hit this one. And hit this one. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, um, through that indirectly met you, you know, shot yeah. so many uh, amazing things with you. Also, Greg Bishop. And, uh, yeah, ultimately got me at Pie Town, got me at uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live. And uh, th- there was one director, uh, Brian O'Donnell, who did uh, The Girls Next Door and also did this thing for NBC. We got along really well, and he brought me on to actually DP a number of reality shows, which there are a lot of aspects of fun about that. Mm-hmm. It's because I, I love documentaries, but there's this craziness of, you know, you, you're setting up a situation, having to light it, having to cover it, and you don't have control over it. It's... Yeah, you're like in a working business or something, and and yeah, and you don't know exactly what the actors are going to, and the fact that you don't know what they're going to do is sort of what makes it quote unquote reality. There's a fun challenge to it because like I've done I've done a green screen show where we were on a green screen stage for for a different show for for a week straight, and I was bored to tears. It melts my brain after a couple hours. Um and. While maybe it's not nutritional food for the soul or the brain, but chasing D-list celebrities around a house, kind of fun. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to deny it. It's and and figuring out lighting stuff and and it's it's a fun challenge. Like it it keeps life interesting. Well, and, and when we talk about reality, like I I know a guy who worked on Deadliest Catch. And I was like, how much of that was like pre-written? He was like, nothing. It was just me on a boat with these people, you know, like, and whatever happened was going to happen. And it's like everything from that to some shows that are like almost completely scripted, but are presented as sort of a faux documentary about ex-celebrities life, you know, Gene Simmons or whatever. Yeah. And, and kind of anything in between, too. So it's sort of like each one can sort of set their own style. Yeah. So kind of uh, interspersed between these shows because these these shows were kind of the the bread and butter for me for for a long time and yeah they they definitely had uh, you know a lot of enjoyable parts but you know around 2007 is when Greg Bishop started talking to me about this feature that uh, Joe Ballerini also from our class at USC he had he had written back in school and oh man we finally had some money to make Dance of the Dead and somehow that got traction and we all ended up in rome georgia for uh about a month and a half two months mm. and that was such a shifting gears and and and, and that's wonder- your, that is that your first feature it's my first feature and i've been doing you know uh short films uh here and there i did a, a sci-fi short uh leading up to that and a bunch of other ones but like this this was my first feature and i was so happy to to shift into that gear 
get out there and it's truly a wonderful script and we were everyone out there was so excited to make it and basically felt like summer camp when we were out there do you have a technique a method a system by which when you're working on something that's longer that like you can keep all the other material in your head so you know like oh we were going to start on wider wider lenses at the beginning and and go longer as we went on where are we in that arc or color or your style of lighting are there any things that you kind of build into the arc of a film while you're shooting it that's always the intent and Mm -hmm. it's fantastic when especially on a lower budget indie film you know it's great when we can pull that off because like um the the last feature i did uh, was called siren Uh, also for greg bishop right yep so Siren is a feature adaptation of Amateur Night, which was David Bruckner's amazing segment from the first VHS. I, I love it. It's my anthology. favorite one out of yeah. that whole. So they they expanded the world, and um, you know it was it was a tight budget. I love Greg Bishop because he really pushes the boundaries of what we can do with uh, you know the resources that we have, and Dance of the Dead is testament to that. But it's again you're like okay well let's use this color palette for this and then you know we're slowly going to move into this and honestly like the the big church climax at the end we're in this church i'm like i just need level i (laughs) i i need a stop and a half more of light and i don't have it like i've already got a condor up with the 12k that we can rent for two days on on this show (laughs) firing into the windows and it's not nearly enough and it it ends up making it difficult to keep kind of that continuity of, of themes that you're doing. And, and, and I think I'm really proud of, of what my team pulled off on that film. I left the film just, and I leave a lot of films where, and I, I don't know if other DPs have said this too, where, you know, you, you step off, you're like, Oh my God, I did, I wish I could have done this different. I wish I, I didn't get this. I, I could, Oh my God, I, I'm a failure. This is terrible. I, and I just, then, I just think every creative person has that in their head. I, well, the ones who don't, uh, we we all know who they are. But uh, <laughs> but, but most creative people will like look at their work forever and be like, oh man, really, really screwed it on that one. I just I was so frustrated with what I accomplished on that. And then the funny thing is, I was, I was two years later went back into Siren and I'm watching it and I'm like, oh fuck, yeah. this this looks okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, and, and, and again, you get too close to stuff. You, you lose objectivity. I, again, like the, the people I had out there and we did that in Savannah, Georgia. And we, for the resources we had, the, the team that I had out there just knocked it out of the park. Visually, a lot of the stuff is, is on my reel now because I'm just like, oh shit, that looks great. And that looks, oh, okay. I mean, <laughs> I, don't get me wrong. There's still a lot of stuff on there that I'm just like, oh, I wish I would have done that. Why didn't, why did I put that silk up on this? Ugh. Yeah. You know. It, it, you, you couldn't have put that silk up. There was, you know, yeah, there was a time constraint or there was a reason you didn't do it. You know, <laughs> like I was at a, a talk after Inception where Wally Pfister was, was talking and like at the Q&A, nobody raised their hand. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, I'll ask a question. And I'm like, hey, it's beautiful. Um, do you ever see anything that you've shot and say, uh, oh, God, that's terrible. <laughs> and he goes, all the time. <laughs> he goes, when I was starting out. And like, it, you know, he said this to the whole DGA audience. Yeah. He goes, when I started out, after a film was done, I hated 80% of what I did on it. And I liked 20. He goes, I'm up to liking about 80%. Now I flipped that and hating 20%. He goes, oh, there's a close-up of Joseph Gordon-Levitt in that film that I still can't watch. Oh, in the man. color grade. He goes, I have to close my eyes because I tried something and oh God, did I fail. 
<laughs> and hearing that, you know, yeah, from Wally yeah. Fister, I'm like, okay, all right. That, it, no, it, Wally's great. Yeah, we, we had him on. I love talking to people like him because, you know, like he started out at Corman. So, you know, he had to learn how to work fast long before he ever got to, you know, doing the Dark Knight and all that stuff. Hey, George, I, I know you are you are perpetually employed. You are someone I know who is always working. And has, and we're getting to do this interview right now because you're not working right now. There's a strike going on. We've got time to, to chat with you. Uh, how are you spending your time? How is this making you feel? How do you feel about your certainty for the future? The great thing is like the, the show that I've most recently been on fully regularly is uh, Jimmy Kimmel Live. Yeah, you've been uh, on there for a while. Yes. Um, and I was just kind of a day plane for, for earlier years and stuff like that, you know, which worked out well for doing features and stuff like that. But um, it also worked out well because you have a kid. That's the thing. I'm one of the one of the DPs for the field department at Jimmy Kimmel Live. So we'll do anything that doesn't happen in the actual live show. So things like um, the, the show's famous for, for doing mean tweets, like that that was all us. Any it's the same department as effing Matt Damon and that sort of thing, and some of the other like very famous sketches that are on YouTube, which have like 20 million, 30 million views. Exactly. So George, in the world of YouTube, you may be the DP who has the, absolutely the most views we have ever had on this show, because <laughs> if you added up all the stuff that you've shot and all of the different like videos here that are on YouTube, it's probably in the hundreds of millions of, of views. Well, that being said, um, my friend Baron, who I mentioned before, who got me, who mm-hmm. got me into uh, Kimmel, he's, he's been in the field department for the longest, so, uh, so he gets the fun stuff. Okay. Um, he, he did, <laughs> he did uh, I'm fucking Matt Damon. Um, and Jimmy ended up doing a response video of I'm fucking Ben Affleck. I remember that. And uh, I remember from what I heard, uh, basically, Matt said to Ben about our crew and our team, he goes, oh, Ben, it's so cool. They're like the special ops of film <laughs> crews. Like they drop in, like do the job in like two hours and it looks like it was shot over the course of like multiple days and that's that's so kinda... what's the secret of that i mean like you do stuff that is shot over multiple days you know you you do features and shorts and you're about to go do a pretty big deal commercial you do that stuff too and then you do this stuff where you have to get comparable results so quickly what's what's the secret it's a great team I mean, our our producers are fantastic with, you know, figuring out the logistics of, you know, they're, they're tasked with, oh, hey, we have this A-list celebrity for, you know, one hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. Like, that's not that far-fetched. I mean, that's more than, than we get some of them. And the writers are, are equally incredible. I'm, I am just, oh God, I'm in awe of the writers that we have on the show because they will come up with something brilliant that can actually be executed in that time frame and yeah and the same thing with our directors like directors are handed uh the task of like hey you have this a-lister you have to get two and a half pages of this with them get a great performance and yeah you've got an hour do you, okay i gotta ask you I, I mean i'm sure they're all like your children but uh, do you have a favorite um i love the next door that's a new thing that we do where we have celebrities acting out an actual next door conversation about some trivial neighborhood dispute. Yes. It's really, it's a reenactment of what you would read on the, on the next door app. And it's like a lot of green screen. And, you know, it it looks to me though, like you get these, uh, you know, it's, it's a really cool segment. Um, but one thing that, that I shot and, and it's just a, 
a man on the street bit, but the writing is brilliant. And the person who who's in it is one of our writers, uh, Tony Barbieri, mm. who, who's, oh man, he, he's got this talent of the live interaction with people. And he plays a fake news reporter, like walking down the street. Sewer rats are taking over the city. Is, should this be a concern? And we'll throw out or he'll throw rats at people that like he'll walk up to people doing his stand-up um and of course i'm doing it zero justice because tony is a genius and and i'm not a genius writer and it is a challenge to shoot because i can't predict him he's he is like it keeps you frosty it it keeps you frosty and also like we pull our own focus on this so he's walking well i mean like how else could you do something like that it would like having a separate focus puller would be kind it would just become a cumbersome extra person to deal with too right yeah and also like i have to try and figure out who the mark is that he's talking about and then reveal them at the right comedic moment so you know starting framed like a again like a local news guy giving his his little stand-up of you know coming up next and knowing exactly when to reveal the person keep them in focus and basically like not fuck it up (laughs) it's it so end up you end up having to do kind of comedy choreography with within your job you know and it's and the pressure's on because it i love the bit it is so funny and and tony's amazing so it's like you can't screw up any single one of his takes doing it because not like oh well i don't want to get in trouble it's like no it's amazing it's hilarious and i want everything to be perfect about this and because it's man on the street like if you get a great response out of somebody and you miss the shot there's not a rate a retake or if there is a retake the magic will be gone you never want to tell the director like ah, i kind of kind of screwed up focus at the end of that one because <laughs> they walk like basically right up and past camera and you're pulling focus on it's oh, that sounds really hard to do <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's a challenge but it's just great to be part of making that funny yeah, you know, yeah. Of, of adding my own craft to it and you leave that day like just smiling yeah especially when you nail something like that and you know i i do think that there is a an art to comedy photography that's why i mean you will see people who who are cinematographers who specifically work in the comedy world and for doing the kind of stuff that you're doing there like i'm sure that there's like you you sort of just get it in your body the timing yeah yeah it's and that's that's the nice thing about being there the whole time is you really you eventually learn the rhythm mm-hmm. like uh, both comedic timing and just kind of the the flow of the show even just from the rehearsal in the morning where everybody uh, you know watches video clips that came in from the night and we watch sketches that have had fine cut editing for for notes and stuff and god that's gonna be so fast i mean are they literally shooting stuff that goes on the air that day yes oh yes a lot of things like, oh, this is a day of bit. Wow. All right. So, George, I think that we ought to jump forward to today. I mean, we're in the middle of a writer's strike. We don't know when this is going to end. How are you keeping yourself, uh, your days busy other than coming here and, and talking to us and going on another podcast? What, what are you What are you up to? Uh, a lot of eating cheese, <laughs> which is why I brought it here, because I don't want to gain any more weight over this um, strike. Uh, no. Uh, actually, so... My wife, Yvonne, who is an amazing camera operator. Wait a second. We haven't talked about this at all until this point, but you and your partner are both camera people. Do you guys find yourself, you know, arguing over the dinner table about like, you know, lighting ratios (laughs) or, uh, you know, boy, that shot was was a little soft there. Or maybe, you know, do you guys, uh, you know, get on walkies to call across the house to each other? What's going on with, uh, with, you know, being married to someone else who does what you do to an extent? 
we took some painter's tape and divided the house in half. <laughs> and we're Brady Bunch style. We do not look at each other. And well, you got you two work together no like on, none, none. On, on on a couple of the projects that you and I did together. Uh, Yvonne came out and uh, pulled focus for you, which I, I was like, oh, fancy, because she she's high, high, high end operator and at the time high end uh, camera assistant. Yes, and actually, I think we should switch this podcast to entirely talking about her because she's amazing and we should have her come in. Wonderful, and we missed the opportunity. She could have been here right now. I uh, know because she's working, because she's great, and her show's still going on. So hey, that's kudos to, to yeah, her. During the strike, she's still operating on a show that's uh, got a bunch of scripts written pre-strike. Correct? Yes. George, you know we don't have a lot of time left here. It's been a lot of fun, but you know I want to bring it back around to Kimmel one more time. You've been there a long time. You've done a lot of yes. stuff. Tell me about, you've already described the, you know, fast-paced atmosphere, but, you know, what's like a day in the life like for you? What is it really like day in and day out doing that job? It's basically like we, we're in the starting blocks for field department. Like we'll have things, you know, scheduled in advance and, and they always pitch whatever current celebrity sketch where, where we do a multitude of them, you know, like the, uh, the, the next door thing, you know, we'll, we'll be ready because the celebrity says, oh yeah, it sounds great. Let's do it. But the greatest thing about just being at Jimmy Kimmel Live right now is, I mean, it is a family there. Like we just had the, um, the, the 20 year anniversary celebration. And at that rehearsal that morning, they, you know, Jimmy had everyone come down. That had been there since season one. And a huge amount of the stage was filled. You know, studio camera operators, producers, directors, writers. And it's just like, that. That says something. And again, like when in the morning when we have the rehearsal and everybody's, you know, kind of watching in, we see the clips from the day that have come in and sketches and stuff and working out kind of the direction that the show's going to go that day. You know, you watch Jimmy work and he is quick. He is so smart and funny. And you're just like, if, if you watch one of, of just those rehearsals sitting in, you're like, okay, I get it. it it's just that that's why this show works so well. And he he takes care of everyone there. It, it is pretty amazing to be a part of that. I think that's a great place uh, to leave it. George, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was really a lot of fun. Well, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. <laughs> We've for... talked about this for a long time. Yes. <laughs> well, but before we go, uh, where can people see your work online if they want to check out? Obviously, they can watch Jimmy Kimmel live uh, when there isn't a Writers Guild strike, but they could go on YouTube and watch any number of it. But where's a good place to see all your stuff? Um, well, um, I'm normally at the Starbucks, um, <laughs> you in, both, in Burbank now, now that the strike's on, but, um, so I've got, uh, just my, my cinematography website. Yes. I still have websites. Uh, uh, I've got one of those too. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, it's just, uh, georgefoyt.com. Nice. Yeah. The, That's F E U C H T. Wow. Well done. Yes. Nice. We'll put a link in the show notes. I may have, <laughs> I may have typed your name into several credits over the years. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that is true. And uh, also, I'm, I'm on uh, Instagram. I, I have a split Instagram because I, I love to do still photography, and I don't want that to pollute cinematography and vice versa. So either G. Foyt or George Foyt on there. It's, Again, I forget which is which. Yes. All right. Well, George, always a pleasure to see you, and thank you for coming out. Finally. Finally. Well, thank you so much. It was a blast. I was looking forward to this, and, and, and you two do not disappoint, let me tell you. <laughs> well, you didn't disappoint with the cheese. So. <laughs> All right, that was George Foyt. That was great. That was such a pleasure and also should be noted, we did that one in person, which, you know, I, I think the last one we did in person was Abe Martinez.
It, it's um, been a bit, yeah, for sure. Abe Martinez, and we used the to second do them time, all in person. Everyone was in person up to a certain point, up until the pandemic. I think Mandy Walker might have been the first one we did remotely. That's that's right. But uh, you know, we, we we have a few tricks to try to make it sound like we're more or less in the same room. But uh, but yeah, it doesn't always work that way. We're trying our best. I have a remote controlled robot that I send over, and it does all my gestures and you know squeezes their cheeks. <laughs> it's really weird. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's it's a little creepy for sure. Super off putting. Hey, hey Ben, let's pay some bills. All right, let's do it. All right, we have to thank our fine friends over at Aperture, maker of high quality lighting equipment for the uh, motion picture and television industries. They have a bevy of new products that they have just introduced, and I want to pay special attention to one, which is the Aperture ElectroStorm CS15. The CS15 is a 1,500-watt full color RGB WW light. So meaning you can create any color that you want. It has very high output quality. It is IP65 dust and water resistant. And at 1500 watts, it has really, really intense power. This is the brightest full color, what they call a cob or chip on board light out there. And it's bright enough to be comparable to the industry standard 1800 watt HMIs. That's which, what I was gonna ask, like which what's is, equivalent to in uh, old people lights? Exactly. So it's equivalent to like a, an M18 and an 1800 oh, uh, HMI. This is, a, this is a bright, wow. it's brand new. They just showed it at uh, some trade events, including uh, Hot Rod Cameras uh, over the weekend. At Cinebeer. Yeah, that's right. At Cinebeer. And we'll talk about that more a little bit later on. But they also have some interesting things. They have a compatible motorized yokes for remote control. They have uh, some new different reflectors that you can put on it. They have a 14 inch Fresnel. There's a whole lot of things that make this light really interesting. Hot Rod Camera has already got a $199 pre-order going. We actually don't know the price yet. They haven't said what they're going to price it at. If uh, the price comes out and you decide you don't want it and you pre-ordered with Hot Rod, we'll refund it. No problem. It's pretty incredible. It's got the green magenta shift. It's got the 2,000 to 10,000 color temperature range. Man, and it covers like 90% of the Rec 2020 color space, which is which is super cool. So I would say that if anyone's looking for a bright light and uh, Aperture is really coming along with some really bright lights and a lot of functions, it's worth taking a look at the Aperture ElectroStorm CS15. Uh, and of course, it can be powered by some batteries. Uh, we've got the pre-orders for the uh, gold mount and the V-mount up on the Hot Rod camera site. So uh, check it out. And now, short ends. <laughs> All right. So, Ben, it is time uh, for our famed short ends. What is your uh, short end? What is your obsession this week? What are you interested in? It could be anything. What What, what is it about? <laughs> could is be it, anything. It's, could, it's it could be anything. Just is it not a is it a podcast? Is it it's a pod- not a podcast? Oh, okay, great, oh, great. What, what what do you got this time? Not a podcast. Well, sort of in honor of uh, as we're recording this, yesterday was Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference, and uh, they announced, in addition to plenty of other things, their new uh, headset, which doesn't come out until next year. But it reminded me of something that was and is kind of a mini obsession of mine from Apple, which was an announcement that came out, I think, about three or four weeks ago that they were making versions of two of their professional editing software products for the iPad. And that's Final Cut Pro 10 or Final Cut Pro X. I don't know what you're supposed to call it, which was the software that ran me off of the Final Cut Pro landscape some, you know, whatever, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, whenever they came out with that Mm. pile of garbage that was Final Cut Pro, the original version of Final Cut Pro 10. Tell me how you really feel. Stop mincing words, Ben. Never, never been a fan. 
but they came out with the version of Final Cut Pro 10 and Logic for the iPad. Now you have to have kind of the current iPad Pro to run them and they are subscription based, which is like the first time Apple, to my knowledge, has put any of their professional level software on a subscription plan, but the subscription plan is five bucks a month, which is, you know. That's how they get you. It's a gateway drug. They're going to start you off at five. They'll be (laughs) up above Adobe before you know it. Yeah, that'd be interesting to see. Yeah, because yeah, because Adobe is you know fifty bucks a month for the Creative Cloud plan. To this day, I, I wish Adobe would just uh, say, "Hey, uh, for those of you who don't need web design tools, as anyone in the video world probably doesn't, what if we just made a video bundle that was twenty bucks a month? Because you don't need Dreamweaver. I'm never going to use Dreamweaver, Adobe. Never ever, never ever, not one time ever. Am I ever going to open up Dreamweaver and design a website? It's not going to happen." And, and you can get just Premiere, I think, for 20 bucks a month. But it's like video creators are going to want definitely Premiere, maybe Audition, definitely Photoshop, definitely After Effects. There's a couple other ones floating around in there. Uh, I still think Adobe is not a bad value for what you get. And, you know, if you work at all, you will pay for a full month in your easily within your first billable hour. But I get it. It's expensive. You know, so Logic Pro is used uh, mostly by uh, musicians and composers, and it's a professional level, like, uh, I believe it's used for MIDI control. I've never used it. And then Final Cut Pro is fully functional video editing on an iPad. Uh, the question that I have is, do I want to edit video on an iPad? And, and I had a lovely debate with a friend of mine about it who was like, you know, could you, what if you could just choose the screens that you uh, did it on? And I think probably most video editors wouldn't mind having it on an iPad, but aren't going are still going to want to go to something with a keyboard, something with a monitor. They're not going to want to be pressing their finger, their greasy fingers after they eat their hamburger for lunch all over their monitor. Will it broadcast to a studio monitor of some kind? Could you do color correction? Could it go to a, to a calibrated monitor? You know, like all of these things are real questions. And if it's basically like using the iPad as sort of the CPU, so instead of having a Mac Pro or a Mac Mini or an iMac or a laptop, you have an iPad, but it's running the same software, but you've got Bluetooth keyboards and stuff, and it's really no different to operate, except you can touch the screen if you would like to, like if you were doing it on a Microsoft Surface, I can see potential there. Also, I feel like buried in this story is that uh, DaVinci Resolve has been on the iPad for, uh, it's not forever, it's been maybe like six, eight months, but you can, you can run DaVinci Resolve on an iPad. You still can't run Premiere on it. The question I also have about it is, even if you're on an iPad Pro, how do you get media in and out? Because iPads make it really hard to, ex- to uh, attach external drives, so do you have to load all your media onto a server or Dropbox or Google Drive or something and then access it from there. And so, I don't know. I have a lot of questions about it that I can't seem to find answers on, but it is kind of a big deal that Apple is making their, uh, I'm going to call it a flagship, their flagship video editing software on an iPad. If anyone has used it, I'd love to hear what you think. Uh, Feel free to hit me up on Twitter at Neptune Salad or uh, Facebook or whatever. I'm very curious about the media thing too and how the media interface is because I could definitely see some people wanting to have their, you know, iPad out there using their fingers, tap, 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 drag some stuff, do a quick edit like on set. Sure. And is that super clunky? How clunky is that going to be to offload a card, have it on a drive, have that on a computer and just not then do it on a laptop? How do you get that stuff? Yeah. Is it only for people who 
have a very particular workflow where they're dealing with proxies and it's all web stuff stored in a cloud somewhere. But then I if don't you have know. to do that, then it's, someone has to generate those proxies and it's a huge, uh, yeah, it's it, another mouth it, to feed basically. And it's, it's another step to, to go through. And that is after all of these softwares have conquered that so that you can just throw media into it and start editing immediately. And so, so many people are if it's editing, like a day to wait to upload all that stuff, is it yeah, worth it? it? No, it's ridiculous. And it's and there's so many people who are doing various forms of quick and dirty editing on their phone these days. And I'm not saying that that has anywhere near the power of Final Cut. But yeah, that when you can do that quick and dirty edit on your phone, what's the value of having this on your iPad? I don't know. Well, you know, what I could see as a potential for this is like, let's say you're making a feature and you have your editor sitting in Video Village with, a, with a, an iPad, rough cutting the scene while you're shooting it. Yeah. You know, like. That yeah. that would be a way to do it. Now, could you do that on a laptop? Sure. But an iPad is a little bit more rough and tumble and a little bit more light and easy to tote around than a laptop. Yeah. Not much, manageable. but yeah, man, but, man, more manageable for sure. You know, when I was on that film shoot back in February, that one of the things I noticed immediately was every department has an iPad that uses an iPad for everything. Like there's so mm -hmm. many iPads and it, and I would say tablets, but it's really iPads. Everyone's using an iPad. Yeah, and, that's, that's um, pretty accurate. They've taken over, it seems. And it's, it's great. Anyway, I can talk about this all day, but uh, if anyone has used Final Cut Pro on the iPad, I'd love, love, love to hear about it. Yeah. In fact, great. record a voice memo of yourself telling us your experience and we'll put it in the show. God damn it. God damn it. Let's do it. All right. <laughs> all right, Ilya, what is your uh, pet obsession? I know you had a big, big, big weekend. I actually went, went to Hot Rod and saw you there. You, you sure did. And actually, that that is sort of it. So it's a little self-serving, but I got to talk about the uh, the weekend, which is Cine Gear, Cine Beer, and actually something really cool that uh, we got to share with, with everyone at our big event. So if you're outside the industry, if you're outside of Los Angeles, uh, you may not be aware that there is an event, an annual event that happens called Cine Gear. It happens also now in New York and Atlanta, but essentially uh, different equipment manufacturers are all kind of invited out to a place. Uh, in Hollywood, it's at uh, Paramount Studios, and it takes place on the New York City backlots and in several stages. And uh, you get to check out all the sort of latest stuff. And there's workshops and screenings and all kinds of stuff that if you're in the technical side of the industry, this is sort of like, you know, the ultimate event specifically for people working in uh, television and motion picture. Uh, some people might argue that NAB is that show. I'm here to say absolutely not. NAB is a more international show and way, way more diverse. It is not focused specifically on this type of uh, production work that Cinegear is. So Cinegear, about four years ago, Hot Rod Cameras started doing sort of like an after party, like the last party. Uh, you know, there's a few other companies, especially there was two other companies near us, uh, Matthews, who makes uh, very fine grip equipment, and Tiffin, who makes incredible filters. And Hot Rod, we all had parties on the same day, and we sort of coordinated this. We coordinated it. So, uh, you know, you can go to Tiffin in the morning, Matthews in the afternoon, and hot rod cameras in the afternoon and, and early evening. And it worked out really well. Now, I have to say, since Cinegear has sort of uh, come back to Paramount triumphantly, it wasn't at Paramount last year. It was downtown at the Los Angeles Convention Center. Since it has come back and the pandemic is over, I have never ever in all my years of going to this trade show ever seen it so crowded and it was crowded in a good way it was crowded not just with vendors there's more vendors there than i've ever seen but it was crowded with uh with people people who were coming who had been i want to say cocooning for perhaps mm. uh you know some length of time who would not go to trade shows like this would not go cram into with with a bunch of the people were all out there and holy moly i gotta say that uh i 
only saw about 6% of all of the exhibitors there because every five feet I would run into someone who I hadn't seen most likely in years. I never got to even like look at my phone. It was so person after person after person. It was so great to reconnect. And I got to say that the vibe that was going on there to quote the uh, parlance of the uh, Generation Z and younger folk, the vibe of Cinegear was uh, celebratory and warm and welcoming and friendly. And that's Gen uh, Z. uh, I thought you were going to say it was lit or something. Well, you know, the vibes were chill. Totally fire. Anyway, All right. uh, and, and not saying it ironically. No, uh, here's the thing. So Cinegear uh, then leads directly into Cinebeer, and our Cinebeer was extremely well attended, the most well attended we've ever had. I think it was about 400 people who came to our event. It's a uh, massive throng. Ran into a few people we knew, uh, ran into Charles Pappert, who's, yeah, that was who's great been on the show. Seeing Charles Pappert, we had uh, an incredible get up there. But one of the things that I don't think we did actually the best job of directing people's attention to, I did mention it once or twice during our raffle. We gave away a few thousand dollars worth of, worth of prizes, which was very nice. We also had a uh, food truck, the only food truck to win the Food Network's Great American Food Truck Race twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also had a hand scooping ice cream thing. But the thing that I've got to tell you that most people, uh, I think, missed, they walked right past it, which is in some ways kind of the point, is that we sponsored a race car. We sponsored a race car from a former collaborator of Hot Rod Cameras, Joey Razul. Joey, a really, really nice guy. He has done some stuff for us on YouTube. And he called me up some time ago and said, hey, Ilya, uh, I'm looking for a sponsor for my race car. I do these time attack races. We do all this stuff. And, you know, um, I said, Joey, tell me what is it that, you know, wh- tell me about this race. And he goes, well, we race against like Lamborghinis and Ferraris and GTRs and, you know, Mustangs and all this stuff. And I said, well, well, what do you drive? And he goes, well, I got a 2007 Toyota Yaris. And I was like, so, so you lose, you lose a lot. He's like, no, Ilya, I win. He's like, I'm going to win this season. I'm going, I blow the doors off these people. It is like, you know, it, we are a legit hot rod. I've got a hundred horsepower motor and we just destroy these people with like, you know, 500, 600 horsepower motors. And I'm like, Joey, you're going to have to take me to school on this. Explain what's going on. He's like, well, it's, power to weight ratio. It's how much power can you produce and how much weight are you, do you have to move? And then how can you put that power onto the tires, onto the surface of the track? I was very skeptical, but I went out to Las Vegas and I think I might've mentioned this on the show before, but uh, it was incredible. It was absolutely amazing to see Joey just like blowing past all these people. And we completely, we completely won in Vegas. We won by like 30 car lengths. It was amazing. Oh, wow. So we, we brought the car out to the show, uh, to our, you know, Cinebeer and people would come by and we had, you know, showed how we rigged up a camera and we, how we did some, uh, some different stuff on it. And Joey was there and was talking to people. But just yesterday, one of the top motorsport magazines, online magazines in the country uh, called The Drive wrote a whole story about Joey's Yaris. And there's a bunch of great photos there where you can totally see like our branding and our logos and stuff. And they link to uh, a video that Joey made because Joey's car, uh, which is this 2007 Yaris, compares extremely favorably to this $50,000 rally version of it that is driven by a pro driver on the exact same course. And Joey's not a professional driver. He's a, you know, very serious enthusiast and he's been working his way up the ranks and uh this latest iteration of this car is the hottest hot hatchback so to speak out there and compared to the professional driver behind the fifty thousand dollar car 
Joey was almost the same speed. In fact, actually, he, he kind of throws down the gauntlet. He says, you know, maybe I'm the limiting factor. Maybe, you know, we should have that pro driver come drive my car. So we'll, we'll see if that happens. But uh, yeah, he was 1.3 seconds difference from the pro driver and the pro essentially version of this this car. And Joey, with his own ingenuity, basically modded the, you know, modded the weight, did a cold air intake and a couple of little things. And this little car, the Hot Rod Cameras, Toyota Yaris, a true hot rod, is turning times on tracks similar to pro drivers in really expensive cars, which I think is amazing. That's awesome. Well, congrats yeah. to Joey. Congrats to Joey. Congrats to, to Hot Rod. I'm glad that we sponsored. I'm glad we're getting some attention out there. And I'm sure I'll say more about this in the future because we're going to use Joey's car as sort of like a vehicle to do some more camera tests and some more YouTube content, and some more stuff like that coming up in the future. So it should be good. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I think we should uh, go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, before we go, Ilya, where can people find you? You can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. You can uh, buy all kinds of camera, lighting, lenses, anything you need for cinema or television production. We can help you out. Hit us up. Ben, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at benrock.com. Uh, yeah, find me at benrock.com. I'm at Neptune Salad on Twitter, and uh, I'm, on, I'm on all the stuff. Uh, th there are other Ben Rocks, but it's pretty obviously me when you find me. So, Ilya, who should we thank this time, as opposed to all the other times? It's like Ben Katz copy-paste every episode, same exact thanks. Anyway, exactly. He could, he could actually just probably pull the recording that we did from any of them and then shove them all in here. Yeah. Uh, the editor of this podcast, he edits all of our shows to make sure that we sound uh, eloquent and succinct. Thank you, Ben Katz. Uh, we have to thank Alana Cody. Alana Cody, producer of the show, showrunner of the show. Alana Cody, uh, she's got a company called Green Tree Creative, growwithgreentree.com. And of course, Kaze Alatrachi. Kaze is a composer, multi-hyphenate, talented, talented SOB. That guy can <laughs> uh, that, that guy can, can score your movie. He can uh, color grade, he can direct, and he is doing all of that stuff, which is amazing. And it's musicbykaze.com. All, all right, right Ilya, you want to take us out? I was going to ask you the same question. Let's do it together. Thanks, for, Thanks li for listening. <laughs> Close enough. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.